2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the local church at Thessalonica, there was something under discussion that was needlessly alarming. A circulating worry that Jesus had already come. And therefore, Christians had missed out on that promised event. And Paul's purpose in chapter 2 is to address that concern and bring calm and assurance to address that anxiety. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Perhaps one way to express what Paul is trying to get over to the people is, calm down. Don't let anyone tell you that the day of the Lord has already come. It will not come until some unknown time after this great apostasy that Paul describes. And along with this, in this passage, Paul addresses something that is happening in our time, and that is how vulnerable people are to believe anything they hear, or any video they see, or any post that comes up on their digital device. There are people vulnerable to believe lies. 
Listen again. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This evening with you for a few minutes, let's review some of the lies that people believe in our time. Number one, you know what the problem is? It's all these other people. The problem is all these other people. I'm going to take you to Romans 2. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul submits a strong indictment against the human race. Simply stated, Paul says, the problem is sin. Living outside the will of God, the Creator. Driven by appetite, influenced by the world, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, neglecting duty to God. Paul, an inspired apostle, knew some might read that indictment and dismiss their own accountability. The problem is all these other people who do all these things. So Paul follows up in Romans chapter 2 with these words. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there were some Paul was writing to who thought that his description of sin in Romans chapter 1 applied to everybody else, all of those other people. And Paul responds to that in the opening of Romans chapter 2. One indication that we need more involvement in self-examination is when we see all the other people and all of their problems, and how much work they need to do, but little or no concern or focus on our relationship with God. That can become a lie, we believe. That the problem is all the other people. If everybody else would just straighten up, If my brothers and sisters would just be like me and listen to me and follow my example, then everything would work out well. See, that can become a lie that we believe. Because the truth is, we all need to be like Christ and listen to Him and follow His example. How easy to gradually embrace a lie. Here's another example. 
I can fix the future. I'm going to go to James chapter 4 for this point. Political candidates love to tell people they can fix everything. Preachers, elders, members can become unreasonably boastful and optimistic and gradually the lie can be embraced that the future is ours to win. We can conquer, we can build, we can fix everything. Let me say, in all our thoughts about the future, we must never leave out the fundamental truth that God is in control. That He is sovereign. He deserves all the praise and honor. And we can put ourselves in the hands of God so that we can be forgiven by the redemption of Christ. But redemption never means that control of the future is handed over to us. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance... All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. When I read this passage, I form this picture, this scene or video that plays out in my mind. These men in maybe an informal business meeting, just sitting around chatting about what they're going to do discussing future profit as if it were certain, boasting of what they will accomplish way ahead of the actual work and the results realized. Sometimes we get so excited about our plans, we start believing the lie that we have it all nailed down. When in fact, sometimes we don't even know where the hammer is and we can't find the nails. The future is ours to win, not taking into account God's providential will. We can put ourselves in the hands of God and be redeemed by Christ, but redemption never means control of the future is handed over to us. Time and the future belong to God. The lies we believe. Here's a third example. I can't be saved. Sometimes the gospel is preached and the listener will think and perhaps say something like this. But you don't know what I've done. My sins are so horrible. I am beyond redemption. I can't be saved. The Lord wouldn't have me under any conditions. Well, that lie discounts the cross of Christ and doesn't account for the grace of God. And here's an example. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is faithful. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What was Paul before he obeyed the gospel? What kind of person, what attitudes, what behaviors before he obeyed the gospel? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, a hypocrite. But when Paul repented and was baptized, he describes what the Lord did for him in his response to the gospel where he says, I received mercy. He speaks of the grace of the Lord overflowing. Again in verse 16, I received mercy. The lie that your sins are too great for redemption, that lie is answered here by Paul based on his testimony, his account of his own conversion. When we teach the gospel to someone who brings up all their many sins, this is the passage to read and study with them. And the emphasis here is on God's mercy toward those who respond to Christ. The lie of too many sins is answered by the mercy of God extended to those who respond to Christ. Here's another lie. Truth is relative. One of the most popular and repeated lies of our time is that truth is relative, denying absolute truth. One way you will hear this lie today is people will speak of their truth and your truth and somebody else's truth. Well, that's a subjective view of what is objective. Truth is objective. It is not relative to the person or the situation. And the idea, the lie of relative truth, gives birth to a whole series of other lies that can be embraced. I'm going to write and publish in our bulletin beginning in January a whole series of articles simply about truth. And here's one part I've already written. 
arguments against absolute truth are actually arguments against truth itself. It is beyond fuzzy logic or sentimental appeals to affirm that everybody and everything is true. It is an assault against the whole concept of truth. See, the Bible never puts truth in some sort of elastic or flexible framework. Ephesians 6 and verse 14, Christians are wearing the belt of truth. Truth from God is that belt. And we all wear the same belt. You don't get to pick out a belt from a whole row of belts so that there's your truth and somebody else's truth. There's one belt, truth from God, unchanging, absolute, and written out for us. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John eight thirty two. It is this simple. If I want the freedom that Jesus offers, I have to obey the truth that he taught. If I want the freedom Jesus offers, I have to obey the truth that he taught. I can't make up my own truth and know that and conclude I have freedom Christ offers. If I want the freedom Jesus offers, I have to obey the truth he taught. The Bible describes it as a purchase. In Psalms 23:23, buy the truth and sell it not. When you open the Bible, there is one set of values you can buy. The truth. It isn't like the dollar store where there are hundreds of varieties. In God's store, there's one product you can buy through your response to Christ, and that's the truth. You know, there are some very simple illustrations of absolute truth. Think about it. If Adam had one apple and Eve had another apple, Mike Grubb can check me on my math. How many apples? Years later, if David had one apple and Jonathan had one, how many? If Paul had one apple and Timothy had one, what's the total? The absolute truth of two apples doesn't challenge, uh, doesn't change from Adam to Paul. And it is the same today. The lie is that truth is relative. Buy the truth and sell it not. The truth God has communicated to us is in his written word and should keep us from sin, from spiritual weakness, from deception, from materialism, and from the lies that circulate in the world and sometimes close to us. Buy the truth and sell it not. That means for each of us, we have to watch out for the lies, defend ourselves by the truth God has given, and be aware of the schemes and harmful thoughts the devil wants to put into our heads and in our lives. Buy the truth and sell it not, remembering that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's be standing.
as we sing.